But then the problem is that members work on the basis of incentives. If the appellate body provides incentives for members to relitigate the case on appeal, members will take that appeal as an, a second opportunity to relitigate the case. And there is where I, I believe is, is the concern because sometimes you have a very well drafted panel report, uh, very well justified, and because the appellate body believes that there is another way to achieve the same outcome, they enter into the reasoning of the panel report to change it. And that creates expectations, expectations for future, future cases. So there is an incentive for the party that lost a case before the panel to relitigate the case, to make some changes to the reasoning, thinking in future cases. You're listening to the Rodolfo Rivas Project. My dad has had big conversations with other people around the world and here in Geneva. He loves it and he's all crazy about it. Remember to have fun listening to it, the Rodolfo Rivas Project. That was Marco Tulio Molina Tejeda. I am Rodolfo Rivas, and this is my podcast. Thank you for listening. Marco is one of the longest-serving deputy permanent representatives to the WTO, currently working in Geneva. If you know a bit about the WTO and or international dispute settlement, you've probably heard about him. I have been meaning to invite him for a conversation. After a few hectic weeks, which led to the WTO concluding, which has been held by some as one of the most successful WTO ministerial conferences, we found some time to sit and chat and, and this, on this and as well as other topics. Marco tells us how he got into the legal profession, primarily influenced by a long line of lawyers in his family. Then he talks about how he got into international trade and participated in negotiating Guatemala's first free trade agreement with Mexico. After a while, he made his way to Geneva, where he has been since 2004. He then shares insightful views on how the multilateral negotiations have changed through the years, as well as international dispute settlement. Lastly, we talked briefly about the 12th ministerial conference at the WTO, fresh in our minds after a very hectic week. It was an informative and enjoyable conversation. So wrap your, in, your ears around it. I hope you enjoy the conversation. The Rodolfo Rivas Project is available on all major platforms or wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Please help spread the word by recommending us to your friends or enemies. A small act like liking, subscribing, and or reviewing is greatly appreciated. Thank you. The views thoughts and opinions shared in the conversation belong to the individuals sharing them and do not necessarily represent the views of their employers. Hello, Marco. It's really nice to finally meet. Thank you for accepting my invitation. No, thank you for inviting me. So we just uh, finished the ministerial, and I want to talk about that. But first, let's begin at the at the beginning. So you are originally from Guatemala, is 
that correct? That's correct. I am from Guatemala, 100%. <laughs> where, where from in Guatemala? Uh, Guatemala City. Guatemala City. And you, you lived there like your whole life until you, you left the country? That's correct. Uh, I left in 2004 when I came here as a counselor to the mission of Guatemala uh, to the WTO. But before that, I, I was, you know, all the time in Guatemala City. <laughs> And you're a lawyer also? I'm a lawyer. Why did you decide to become a lawyer? I come from a family of lawyer. lawyers. Okay. Actually, my grandfather and my father uh, both were lawyers. And a funny thing is that uh, we have the same name. So my grandfather's uh, name uh, was Marco Tulio Molina Abril. Then my father's name uh, was Marco Tulio Molina Valenzuela. And I am Marco Tulio Molina Tejeda. <laughs> so we are three generations of lawyers. And we had actually in Guatemala uh, one uh, law firm where we were working together. The three of you. The three of us. And it was very interesting because every time that we receive a call from any client and they ask for the, you know, the lawyer Molina, uh, the secretary always had to, to ask which one. The grandfather, the father, or the grandson. <laughs> uh, and, and that was, uh, uh, you know, the, my inspiration to become a lawyer. Uh, I, I always joined my, my father uh, at the law firm and in his trips to, you know, the countryside where he had a lot of clients. So uh, it's how I, I grew up and then I, I found, you know, this inspiration to, to become a lawyer. My, my father also, his name is Rodolfo and he went to law school. He didn't finish, but he also wanted to be a lawyer. And whenever everyone says like, Mr. Rodolfo, I'm all, even if they're referring to me, I always look to see if they're talking to my father. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that happened to you as well. Yeah, that happened to me very frequently. But, but was that something, because in my case, my father kind of did, did push me to become a lawyer. Was that something that happened in your case or was just like natural? It was natural. I, I knew that I wanted to be a lawyer when I was five, to be honest. I, I liked very much to sit out of my father's uh, office, listening to what he Uh, told to his, uh, you know, uh, clients, and I joined him in uh, several hearings uh, back in the time in, in Guatemala City's uh, tri tribunals. So I really liked that, and I knew from the beginning that I wanted to be a lawyer, which was a little bit of a problem at school because I was very good for uh, in in maths and physics and all the science, you know. Uh, that we had at school. My teachers wanted me to be like an engineer or something like that. Yeah. Uh, but I always knew that I wanted to be a lawyer. So that was a little bit of, you know, a, a conflict with my teachers that they wanted to uh, push me in a different direction. Uh, and I don't regret it. I, I mean, I really enjoy this, this profession. I enjoy what I do. And especially like very much, you know, The, the both sides that I had the, the opportunity to, to, you know, to, to, to experience, uh, and that is on the one side uh, the negotiating aspect, you know, of this uh, uh, post, 
and the second is uh, you know the opportunity to litigate and to use you know different uh, dispute settlement uh, mechanisms. So this is what I I really like and, and I really enjoy. And actually, I want to talk a bit more uh, about this because you are one of the few. Well, I don't know if there are few, but uh, of here in Geneva that specialize in disputes. Although you do a lot of other things, you specialize in disputes. What kind of law did your, because I, I can't imagine that your, in your, the law firm of your family, they did like international trade. Or, not, or did they, maybe? Not really, actually. When I was uh, in Guatemala, I, I well, maybe uh, as a background uh, information, uh, when I was studying law, at university, I was also working for the Ministry of Economy. Okay. And I was appointed negotiator for FTAs. So it's how I, I really got the interest in international trade law. But at the same time, uh, our law firm was specialized in uh, constitutional issues, ah, okay. civil law, uh, domestic law, labor issues. So I, I grew up in an environment of, uh, you know, domestic law litigation. Uh, while at the same time I was working for the Ministry of Economy and this opened up my eyes for international trade. And how did this interest like uh, come in, like the international trade or was just like an opportunity or how did you look for it? Actually, I think it was a little bit of coincidence and luck. Uh, when I started studying law uh, at law school, I, I wanted to work at the same time, to have some, you know, experience. I and think that, that is very common in Latin American countries. That's very common, and actually it's, it is facilitated, yeah. because you have the opportunity to study law at night. Yeah. So uh, I started study, studying law at night at 5 30 p.m. until 10 p.m. and I had the whole day just to look for a job. And it was a coincidence that my dad uh, actually met someone that was working at the Ministry of Economy uh, in, uh, uh, in uh, you know, the, the one-stop window for investment yeah. facilitation back in Guatemala. And she was looking for someone to assist her, you know, in, in the normal, you know, work of uh, advising investors and trying to facilitate the legal proceedings for establishment of, of investment uh, in Guatemala. So my dad told her that I was looking for a job. Uh, she interviewed me uh, and I got the, the, the job. It was a very simple job, but it, it paid some bills. When you are a student, uh, you, you really counts. need to pay some, some bills, <laughs> uh, the books and everything. So uh, it's how I started my career in the Ministry of Economy. But when you, because you were like a lawyer, didn't you think? I was a student. A student? Yeah. But like you, you wanted to go like, because of your father and grandfather, you wanted to go like to, to the litigation. And this was a bit different. Like it didn't, it didn't like cause any, troubles in, inside of you saying like, oh my God, but this is not really what I want to do at the beginning. No, no, no. Actually, I found this very interesting. Uh, and as I said, it was a coincidence, uh, luck, if you want to call it like that. Uh, it is true that my uh, grandfather was not happy with uh, this, you know, job. 
he wanted me to work for the tribunals in Guatemala. Uh, at some point, he, he was one of the uh, you know, judges of the Supreme Court in Guatemala. So he has certain connections that would have facilitated me to enter the judicial career in Guatemala. But I didn't want really to go there. And uh, I found this, this job in the at the Ministry of Economy very, very interesting, which lasted like eight months. Then I got the opportunity to join uh, the negotiating team of Guatemala. And at the time we were negotiating uh, the FTA uh, between Mexico and uh, El Salvador, Honduras and Guatemala. Uh, and at the beginning I was the assistant the assistant of the dispute settlement negotiator uh, for Guatemala uh, for these negotiations. Uh, and, and I found this really fascinating, you know, uh, not only the, the matter, not only, you know, the, the fact that we were new, uh, to be very honest, in Guatemala to this new uh, trend of negotiating uh, FTAs, but also, uh, you know, the dynamics of negotiating with other representatives of other countries, trying to achieve, achieve something and that would uh, change the way we do business. Was this like the, the first FTA of Guatemala? Uh, yes, the first uh, So FTA. the whole team, like, this was like a new experience for everyone? New, new experience for everybody. I, I think the other day you were telling a story about uh, a, a negotiation between the ministers. <laughs> I don't know if you... Okay, forget about it. No, no. no. <laughs> I, I know what uh, you are referring no, no, to, no, but it's uh, okay. perhaps yeah. it's not appropriate for this uh, you know, type okay. of conversation. Um, but what I was going to say, that that must have been like really exciting to be there at the ground level, like forming... Like everyone was creating like new agreements, everyone was learning, and it was something that was entirely new for a whole group of people, and also for many countries. It was not exclusively to to Guatemala. Yeah, yeah, we had a very, you know, uh, very good team. Uh, we were all learning. Uh, that was the first time that I knew that uh, there were some principles at the WTO. Uh, I remember one of my colleagues uh, offered me as a gift the Euro One Round uh, agreements. That was the first the time book? I saw yeah, the, green the, book. the green book. Yeah. Uh, that was the first time I saw that book, and I had no idea <laughs> what was the purpose or the object of those agreements. So I started to read and, and understand. We also took, uh, you know, NAFTA as a basis for our negotiations, and we learned a lot from our fellow, uh, you know, Mexican negotiators. Uh, not only in terms of, you know, the the, the subject matters, but also the techniques to negotiate. And that was very, very interesting, very fascinating <laughs> at, at, the, at the time. And the, I, I want to ask you a bit more about this, like, um, what were, because your training was in, in law, like legal practice, like what were some of the other things that you you looked at when you were doing this? Like, uh, what, what other topics did you research or study to prepare yourself for this negotiation? Well, at some point, after one year of uh, assisting, you know, the dispute settlement negotiator, I got the position of negotiator of dispute settlement, and then as legal advisor to the minister and vice minister. 
And as such, I had the responsibility to review and assist all my colleagues in all the subject matters. So I had to, uh, you know, go to, through a different kind of trainings and, and understand the different issues uh, that we were negotiating, including, you know, market access, rules of origin, uh, anti-dumping, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and it was a very intense, uh, you know, uh, time in which you have to to learn even having access to the to the books and the materials it was not easy in, in Guatemala because nobody was really paying attention to uh, the developments in, in the international uh, setting so uh, every time that we travel to Mexico for instance one of the you know uh, most uh, wanted stops uh, were going to the libraries to get books and, and trying to get the materials to understand better what was happening at the time. So it's, it's how I started to learn bit by bit and it was a great learning experience about uh, WTO disciplines and in general trade disciplines. And you did this for, for how long in Guatemala? For about um, five, six years, oh, and yeah. then I moved to the private sector as an advisor, uh, especially when we were negotiating with the United States, uh, the, the CAFTA-DR. Uh, I was assisting and advising the Chamber of Industry, uh, and I was uh, the executive director of several guild associations, including the Pharmaceuticals Association and the Chemical Association. Uh, and um, I also advise, uh, you know, the Exporters Asso Association. So uh, taking advantage of the experience I, I gained during my, my uh, you know, time uh, at the Ministry of, uh, of Economy. Uh, and then uh, we moved here to Geneva. <laughs> okay, and I, you've been here for a while already. This was in? 2000, um, 2004, 18 years now. <laughs> oh my God, because I usually say that I'm a veteran, but you are a veteran, I'm, I'm still a newbie. Don't say that, I feel old. <laughs> <laughs> but this means that you've been dealing with WTO for many years, you've seen a lot. Yes, that's correct. What are some of the, of the differences that you can see from when you started uh, to what we are now here in the WTO? Difference in... Like in I don't know, like in practice, things how we do, uh, or just in general, do like in disputes, for, because you specialize in, in disputes. Yeah, uh, well, Specializes is a very strong word to, to use. I, I am, you know. We're here, like, we're, here we're jack of all trades. Yeah, we do everything. We do everything. <laughs> but you know, the, the difference uh, between uh, WTO and what I experienced in the bilateral relations of Guatemala negotiating FTAs is that this is a completely different world. First, uh, my experience back in Guatemala was in negotiations not in the administration and implementation of the agreements, which is a completely different task and a completely different mentality. And you can see that also here at the WTO. Uh, you have the negotiators and you have those that 
at the end has to implement the outcomes of the negotiations. And that's a completely different mindset. But one of the uh, most important differences that I find is the way you, you do businesses uh, you know, in, in bilateral relations and here at the WTO. This is very complex because you are dealing with a different uh, you know, levels of development, different interests, different concerns. While in the bilateral relations, normally you, you really want something and you want to achieve something. For instance, when ministers meet and they say, okay, I want an FTA between Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, well, you have that objective in mind. Uh, you know that is uh, a mutual interest, uh, especially that you want to change the way in, in which you uh, do transactions, commercial transactions between and among you know, the, the, the participants which you may think this is not different with respect to what we do at the WTO, but in the WTO, you have different kind of interests. Let's say uh, Guatemala and in the other side of the world, you have uh, Singapore or you have India or you have uh, any African country. We may not have the same interest. We may not have the same concerns. And that's what makes this organization very important, very interesting, but also very challenging. And that's the, the, the difference I noted uh, since the beginning. Uh, and, and the other thing that I find very interesting is that uh, in, in bilateral relations, there is a lot of room for you know, making mistakes and, and trying to correct those in a very short period of time. Mm. Here at the WTO, uh, you have to really prepare. Uh, if you are going to uh, table a proposal, you have to be very sure that the proposal is really well done, review, and again review, because it will go to the scrutiny of so many members and so many experts. And you will receive a lot of questions, and they will try to destroy your proposal while in the bilateral relations is more flexible, more amicable, I would yeah. say. So this is more or less the, the difference I found in, in, in the two experiences I, I had. And specifically in disputes, when I started working at the WTO with disputes, I remember that we, could, we had to print the documents, bring like so many sets of copies and we, we had to rush to the WTO like in the last minute and deliver them like even those things which was not that long ago is no longer like that. What are some of the other changes that you've seen like in the practice of for example dispute settlement? Well there have been changes and evolution I, I would say not only in dispute settlement but, but also in negotiations. Let's talk about dispute settlement Something that I have witnessed is that we have a, a dispute settlement that is less and less flexible, less spontaneous. Mm -hmm. The first disputes in which I, I participated, for instance, uh, you didn't receive the questions from the panel in advance or the topics that you would discuss on appeal in advance. Yeah. You really needed to come to the hearing, 
prepare with your arguments, with your uh, evidence, because you could expect any Anything. question from the panel. And what is better? What do you think is better? I think before was better, because uh, that was the concept of, of an oral, oral hearing. Now everything is by the script. Everything is written. So you receive the questions in advance, you prepare your responses, and you read the responses to the panel. And perhaps because it's more comfortable to read rather than to you know, speak and to have a conversation between the panel and uh, the parties, you don't see many follow-up questions. So it's like you are introducing uh, a written step in the oral hearing, which is supposed to be oral. So then, like, would that, uh, but doesn't that offer the possibility of like a better representation by like having the possibility to examine and work on your statements like thoroughly? Yes and no. Uh, the idea of introducing, you know, the questions in advance was to avoid the situation in which any of the parties could say look, I was not prepared for these kind of questions and I will respond later in, in, in written form. Uh, and just to ensure that the panel would get uh, enough information from uh, the hearing. That was the purpose and I think it, it was a, a very good idea. But the downside, how this evolved, is that if you have a member that is trying to defend a measure and that member doesn't have really the arguments, it's less likely that the panel will realize that during the hearing because, uh, you know, in a very articulated manner, following the script, the defending member will respond something that makes sense. Well, if this is spontaneous and you can pose the question during the hearing, you will immediately know that there is no response, perhaps, for a particular question. So. Uh, I think that in, in that sense, uh, you know, panel proceedings and the appellate body proceedings were more, you know, formal, less spontaneous, and sometimes that doesn't allow really the exchange, be, uh, the exchanges between uh, the panel or the, the adjudicator with the parties that allows to understand better what's behind a particular measure that is Actually, I, I want to mention two things here. Like one, I was surprised because like recently at the selection process of the director general at WIPO, mm -hmm. the questions to the candidates are also provided in advance and they can prepare for them. Here at the WTO, they're not provided in advance. They're like given during the session and the candidates have to provide an answer right there and then, which I think is better because it allows you to actually see like what they're thinking, what they're, instead of allowing them to prepare and, and maybe mask some of those things that you were saying. And the other thing that I wanted to mention is that I've heard colleagues who have been working at WTO for some years say that even during regular committees and negotiations, a lot of the interventions were more spontaneous before. Mm -hmm. They were not uh, pre-written. And everything now has to be like pre-authorized by capitals and written. And there's little dialogue. And there's little room for flexibilities because they stick to the script, which is exactly what uh, the DG Ngozi wanted to avoid during this 
this negotiation during the ministerial? That's true, and, and I experienced that at the very beginning when I, I was appointed here at, in, in Geneva uh, before the WTO, and, and I remember that first we were like 20 delegations speaking, not the 60, 70 delegations that we normally speak at any committee or, or the General Council. Second, we were, you know, we were having an spontaneous conversation, and it was uh, interesting because Sometimes you ask for the floor twice, uh, three, four times, just to react to what others have said. And you know, the interventions were very short, like one minute, one minute and a half. So there was actually a conversation among members. And that, as you are pointing, pointing out, uh, it has, I, I would use this word, deteriorated in what we have today, because now you have very long statements, like seven, eight minutes statements. We are not paying attention to the statements, <laughs> and we are not reacting to the, to the statements. Yeah, you're not reacting. Everyone is reading their own statement. Yeah, yeah. So if we continue like this, I'm afraid that it will be more efficient just to send your statements and then a compilation, and then you can read that later. But, I mean, who, but who's going to read them? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I also remember something that Acevedo said that when he was running for DG, he said that I know what every one of you are going to say even before you say it. And often, I haven't been here that long, but often case it's true. Like you kind of already know the lines of certain members, at least the, the main strokes. Maybe there can be like some subtle differences, mm -hmm. but the main strokes are pretty predictable. Yeah. And Normally, you don't change your statements because if you are going to continue the discussion, let's say that every dispute, uh, DS, sorry, DSB or any general council, you see that there is no attempt to change the, the statements. You just recycle, recycle your statements, and this is not good for the organization. At the end, it makes no sense to, you know. Uh, just reading statements that nobody will uh, pay attention to and at the end what happens is that you know the regular bodies simply take note of the statements even for the secretariat to prepare the minutes I think it, would, it is very easy now because they know that more or less is the same yeah. every time and before you we went a bit into the dispute you mentioned that there were two things the dispute and the negotiation the negotiation is the same. I mean, if you see uh, all negotiations, very well-known positions, and at some point uh, it is very, you know, frustrating to see that members, except for the last week, members do not negotiate. They are trying to convince each other that their own positions are those that should prevail in a negotiation. And this is not the way you negotiate. Uh, you cannot force others to accept your position. And that's why we all are, you know, in this uh, situation in which no agreements are reached here at the, at the WTO. Let's take a, an example, the DSU review. Oh, that has been going for yeah. since the beginning of time. <laughs> exactly. So look at the DSU review. Uh, and I don't know if you had the opportunity to participate in those meetings. Very interesting, uh, very technical. Uh, you learned a lot. Mm -hmm. 
but we never started negotiations. So you have those that are in favor of more transparency and open hearings and you know enhance their party rights and those yeah, actually that many of the things that we were discussing there, like enhance third party rights, uh, amicus curia, all of those things, they were like were passed by the actual practice in the in the dispute. So it shows that how slow to exactly. they are. That's one thing, and the other thing is that okay. It is clear that we are not convincing each other, but we haven't started negotiations. So sometimes, sometimes, okay, you have some preferences. You may not be, you know, in favor of more transparency, but it doesn't harm you. So why not start negotiations saying, okay, if I am going to give you more transparency, perhaps I would be interested in having enhanced third party rights because this is what really I, I want to see reflected in the negotiation. We never started that, that you know, process. Uh, we stayed in the same dynamic of trying to convince others why transparency is good or why transparency is not as good as others think or saying my position, because this is the word we use, my position is I don't want more transparency because of whatever reason, and the other saying we need more transparency because of whatever reason. But at the end, there is no something in the middle or any third or fourth option that you could explore to reconcile the different interests and the different concerns. Uh, for instance, you can think about, okay, uh, progressive transparency. Those that are ready to have more transparency, you can have something in the DSU allowing for that. Or perhaps increase transparency first at the WTO membership uh, level, uh, not necessarily, op necessarily open to the public. Which is, is something necess necessary, and yeah. which we saw even last time, during the last week, that it was extremely necessary. Yeah, but that's, this that's is a negotiation. A, yeah, that's a transparency negotiation. But I think that overall transparency is always good. I think that at least at the level of uh, the members, it is fundamental. And this is what you're saying that the practice, actually, how it has been happening is through agreements between the, the parties, the parties in the dispute. Yeah. That share like some, some common interest and then they decide to have a transparency, but not in a policy white uh, manner. Yeah. Uh, and this is good and not necessarily good because at the end the problem is that you have different, uh, different uh, you know, proceedings or different practices among members. Now if you are going to uh, bring a dispute against a particular member, you have to check first if you sign with that member a particular agreement uh, relating to certain practices. And then take that into consideration when you ask, for instance, the panel how to draft uh, the working procedures for panel uh, pro uh, proceedings. <laughs> so this is the kind of things that start fragmenting you know, the practices at let the WTO. Uh, but on the other hand, I, I can understand, you know, the interest of members saying, okay, if we cannot get something in the DSU review, and this is what we are convinced should be the, the trend or the practice, why we are not going to be allowed to do that. So, 
this is the kind of things that happens when you don't agree on and you don't negotiate actually in the, the regular bodies of the WTO. I want to talk about, because this is uh, talking from the perspective of a, of a delegate representing your own country, but you've also served as a panelist in, in disputes here at the WTO. Like how, how do you approach this when you are serving as a panelist? And what are the differences? There are obvious differences, like as uh, representing a country. But what are some of the differences in your approach? Well, the approach is completely different. Uh, one notable difference uh, is the fact that you are an adjudicator. And you work with fellow panelists. And you have to listen carefully to the arguments of both parties without prejudging the outcome at the beginning. And this is very important, and, and this is perhaps the most difficult part. Because when you are a delegate, and you read a, a panel request, you say, okay, that may go this way or that way. So you have to really be very careful when you are a panelist not to have a, you know, an idea before listening to the arguments of the parties. And you have to be very objective in that regard. And that's a notable difference with respect to your role as a delegate representing your country, because when you represent a country, you receive instructions. When you're a panelist, you don't receive instructions. Well, you have a mandate that is, uh, you know, uh, stated in the, in the DSU, and, and you have a responsibility, but you don't have instructions. Another notable difference is the fact that when you are representing your country, you are advocating for something. As a panelist, you don't have this preconceived idea and you are not advocating for anything. Actually, even though there are, in certain cases, negotiations and discussions among panelists, you have a very well-defined objective and that is to interpret agreements in accordance with the principles of interpretation and assist the parties in resolving the dispute. So it's very different and you have to really be very clear from the outset of what is your role and not mistaking your role as a diplomat representative of your country and as a panelist. You have to really be independent trying to leave all your baggage at the door when you enter, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the hearing and, and, and pay attention and respect to both parties. Because something that I have experienced is that even if you have a complaining party and a defending party, that doesn't mean automatically that the defending party uh, is acting inconsistent with the WTO agreements. So everybody has the right to make you know, their case, and uh, they have the equal opportunity to present uh, the evidence, the arguments, and at the end, uh, the panel should take a decision, and must take a decision on the basis of what the law says and the evidence shows. Uh, and this is perhaps uh, the, 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 the mindset that you, you need to have. Mm, well, very are. well put. I think your, your grandfather would be proud of this because he wanted you to go into a career of this 
And this was at least in that direction. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hope uh, uh, he didn't have the opportunity to see that uh, <laughs> before uh, he passed uh, away. Uh, but like uh, mentioning this, like at one point you were also considering the possibility of becoming an appellate body member. That was a different time, yes. <laughs> <laughs> my government uh, was supporting my uh, candidacy to become an appellate body member uh, for you know the position uh, to Latin Latin America. Um, but never happened because of the reasons that we all know. I I don't uh, I don't want to because I know I probably know what you your view is, what you would want to happen with the appellate body. So I'm not going to ask that. But more, what do you actually think is going to happen? Is are we ever going to see it again? Is it going to be something different? How how do you see this in the next few years? Not what you want, but what what will actually happen? Uh, look, look. Uh, just to, to 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 be clear, it's not that I want an appellate body because I want an appellate body. Uh, what I want is a dispute settlement mechanism that is effective uh, and is efficient, and that provides the necessary comfort for members to use it wisely uh, to resolve the, their disputes. So uh, I think that the appellate body or whatever body or second tier we have uh, is a valuable one because that uh, provides a certain consistency and coherence in the decisions. Uh, I can understand that some members, very few members, feel like you know the appellate body went beyond of what it was mandated to do. But when you look closely to the concerns and interests expressed by those members, you see that in the design of the dispute settlement mechanism here at the WTO, is not something different of what they want. Perhaps when, when we have the difference in opinion is the way uh, the DSU was implemented and the way uh, you know, litigation developed. But the design is not something that should be of concern, I believe, and, and I stand to be corrected, but I don't think that uh, it is a problem with the design of the mechanism. So I am hopeful that after our conversations and a, and a better understanding of our different interests and concerns, we will end with a mechanism with two-tier, two you know, uh, uh, or two instances, uh, but being implemented and administered in a different manner. Uh, that's what I, I am hopeful. I don't have the crystal ball. I don't mm -hmm. know what's going to happen. What I know is that uh, members are not ready, or the majority of members are not ready to renounce to a binding system, uh, quasi-automatic in its uh, you know, operation, and they are not ready to abandon the two-tier system. 
because of the many advantages that it provides in, in terms of predictability, uh, you know, coherence of the decisions, etc., etc. But it is true that at some point, uh, you know, there are concerns about how this developed. And I honestly believe that once we achieve this level of understanding, we can make some adjustments to the way we do things in terms of the dispute settlement mechanism that will address those concerns and, and those interests. And I think that we have discussed in the past with you and, and others some, some ideas. Uh, it is true that there has been an abuse in the use of the, of the appeal. Uh, and it was not intended to work like that. It was intended to correct egregious errors in, in panel reports. And I can tell you, uh, panel reports are of a very high quality. Uh, I don't think that we need to review and to change every single panel report that we have at the WTO. But then the problem is that members work on the basis of incentives. If the appellate body provides incentives for members to relitigate the case on appeal, members will take that appeal as an, a second opportunity to relitigate the case. And there is where I, I believe is, is the concern because sometimes you have a very well drafted panel report, uh, very well justified, and because the appellate body believes that there is another way to achieve the same outcome, they enter into the reasoning of the panel report to change it. And that creates expectations, expectations for future, future cases. So there is an incentive for the party that lost a case before the panel to relitigate the case, to make some changes to the reasoning, thinking in future cases. So again, it's a matter of incentives. My point is, if the appellate body will achieve the same outcome, the same conclusion, but with a different reasoning, it will suff suffices to say, uh, suffice to say that, uh, for instance, we disagree with the reasoning, but because we are confirming the outcome, we are simply confirmed and, and we are not going to enter into the assessment of the reasoning. They can receive the right for future cases, but they don't need to really spell out what they would have done uh, in the place of the, of the mm -hmm. panel. Another situation is that, uh, you know, there are incentives for the, you know, the parties in a dispute not to tell the panel in the interim review what's wrong with the legal reasoning. And you have heard this expression, it's better to save that for, for a, a, an appeal. Mm -hmm. Because we don't want the panel to correct any error or to make more difficult an appeal. That is like a, like a negative incentive. It shouldn't be there. Exactly. But what if, for example, we were to agree that if you don't raise an issue you cannot in, interim, raise it. Yeah, in interim report, then you have an admissibility issue mm. on appeal and you cannot raise it before the appellate body. I am pretty sure that you will think twice, bring in an appeal first, and second, you will get the opportunity to the panel 
to uh, show whether there is uh, a legal error. So, so this that you're saying, there's a couple of issues that you can see that could be implemented to actually correct these incentives yeah. and improve the whole the whole system. Yeah, yeah. But with only like minor changes like this one, for example. Yeah, I, I mean, you don't need to get rid of the appellate body if you don't like how the appellate body is, you know, rendering decisions. It's better just to make the adjustments and to provide the correct incentives for members to make better use of the system and for the appellate body to focus on what it was supposed to focus and that was on legal errors. Mm. Uh, and if you can, you know, uh, manage to reconcile the different interests and concerns and to make these adjustments, I think you don't need to reinvent uh, the dispute settlement mechanism or to get rid of parts of, of it. You can have the same system, but improved and, and you know, address those, those concerns. And another criticism that has been raised is that due to the inability to negotiate outcomes, there's been a, a heavy reliance on disputes. Now during the last ministerial, we, we, I don't know if we showed that this is no longer a problem, but at least we had some outcomes uh, that were done through negotiation. There's still some questions about how that was done, but do you think that this can be like a, a solution more for the medium and long term? Well, first, I think that there is a difference in philosophy because uh, what I understand is that some members believe that by diminishing the role of the dispute settlement mechanism, members will improve their capacity to negotiate. And I think it's the contrary. And I think that the approach should be the other way around, meaning that you have to strengthen the negotiating function and you will need less and less the dispute settlement mechanism. Because if we recover the ability uh, to negotiate among ourselves, including particular disputes and, and the trust and confidence that it is involved in any negotiating process, you will need less and less the dispute settlement mechanism. But if you destroy the dispute settlement mechanism, and I am using a very strong word, but you destroy the dispute settlement mechanism, it's not true that you are going to be more inclined to negotiate because you lose leverage, especially for those that the only uh, incentive to negotiate and to try to reach uh, a mutual agreed solution is the fact that you have a very strong dispute settlement mechanism. So I think that we need to change the approach. I am very hopeful with the outcomes of this ministerial uh, because that may change the dynamics in this organization and recover a little bit of what we were expecting when uh, we created the, the WTO. And that is, uh, you know, uh, constant and progressive negotiations of issues of interest of members. I understand that some are still considering this as a very modest outcome, uh, watered-down uh, outcomes, but still, it's, it's, it's a very important step forward. Yeah. And, and 
perhaps we need to change our mentality that uh, we need a huge ministerial conference with a lot of outcomes well, we should focus actually to continue negotiating every day and have, you know, progressive results to make, you know, the negotiations more dynamic. Uh, let's take, for example, the two successful negotiations, trade facilitation and uh, fishery subsidies. We negotiated both for about, what? 10, 15, 20 years, the last one, the, the fisheries negotiation. So at some point you have to tell or, or to, to ask, why do we need so much time to conclude an agreement? And what difference would it make if we agreed progressively, okay, this time we are going to agree on this specific topic. Uh, in six months we are going to agree on another specific topic and we implement slowly. The same happened with NAMA and agriculture. Because of the level of ambition, which was the topic at the time back in 2008, we didn't agree on modalities. Mm. Now we are saying that after 20 years of negotiating NAMA and agriculture, we haven't been able to agree on the level of ambition. What if we agree on a very low level of ambition, but back in 2004 or back in 2008, and we make you know uh, progress step by step? By now, we we would have implemented many of the you know elements that a higher level of ambition wanted but, 20 years yeah. 20 years ago. So again, we need to change the mentality. Uh, we need to see, you know, outcomes in these organizations uh, not as the last step or the final step in a negotiation, but as a beginning of the next step. And, and perhaps this ministerial conference will change uh, that dynamic. And actually, I think that, that 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 you're mentioning is quite important because I think that now, at least from the initial reactions that I've gotten around here is it's being viewed a bit like that, as a step. As a step like in a long, in a long process. But the first successful step that maybe can change the approach. But the other thing is that if you read the, the press, if you read all of the, the articles and experts from outside, they're all claiming the death of the organization. And us here in Geneva, I think it, it gets into our heads. Like, and we start to believe it as well. Yeah, yeah, the, the, it's, it's a little bit of that. Uh, and I hope that really that after this ministerial, we, we start thinking seriously about WTO reform. Uh, WTO reform, not as a huge project. I will start with, uh, again, with small steps. I will start with changing the methods uh, we do business here in the organization, starting for the long statements, uh, improving transparency, improving inclusiveness, uh, changing the way we draft legal instruments in this organization, because something that I have experienced recently is that 
there is there is a methodology how to you know agree on, on, on a particular instrument but recently we have been involved in in negotiations based on text that we project on the screen where we all participate with ideas uh, with language and I find that important if we were negotiating the principles but when you are negotiating the legal instrument the legal text that's a very delicate exercise uh, the other day I was present in a meeting where we were discussing for six hours the difference or two options uh, between uh, especially and particularly when you look at the dictionary those are synonyms so it makes no difference mm. but nevertheless we spent six hours discussing this we had in the text the two options in brackets we had uh, two groups of members one in favor of one option and the other in favor of the other option and that was negotiating against a different issue in a different provision that had nothing to do with particularly or especially. So the problem is that when it comes to litigation and uh, a panel or the appellate body is interpreting this legal instrument in accordance with the Vienna Convention and the rules of interpretation, if there is a difference and then in one paragraph you have particularly and the next paragraph you have especially and the disputing parties start making arguments about the differences in text, you know that a difference perhaps may have a meaning. And actually it is not that the negotiators intended to have a difference in meaning sometimes it's because one negotiator wanted one word and the other negoci negotiator wanted a different word and that was the whole contribution that they perhaps made that day in that negotiation mm -hmm. so i believe that we need to review the way we uh, we uh, negotiate legal instruments perhaps we may have a previous step in which we all discuss principles subjectives the, ele the elements that uh, the legal instrument should contain and once we agree on that leave a group of lawyers or maybe the secretariat or whatever we feel uh, you know confident that they will make a good job to draft the legal test text for uh, the consideration of members i think that may facilitate the negotiating process may improve the quality of the legal instruments and will avoid uh, these situations in which sometimes it's a matter of personalities or different understandings that you introduce language in the text that later will create the problems in litigation yeah. and that is the, the main complaint by those that don't like the dispute settlement mechanism because uh, then the adjudicator is taking a decision that perhaps was not considered by the negotiators because they were not intended to give certain meaning to, 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 the, to the instrument. So these are some of the ideas that we should explore within the context of WTO reform. I think that we should start by the, the most simple and basic steps. And, and then let's see where, where we go. 
to improve this organization and, and to improve the way we conduct the business at, at the WTO. And lastly, Marco, I just want to say that I've seen you very active in social media lately, LinkedIn, and I think you even made an appearance in TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> Are you planning to be more active? Well, you know, uh, I am not very active, to be, to be uh, very honest with you, in social media. Uh, I found, you know, uh, a good opportunity at this ministerial because uh, we didn't have participation from capital. Uh, and many of uh, our officers uh, back in Guatemala follow closely, uh, you know, the, the developments here at the WTO and, and it was covered in the media. So I thought that it was uh, a good opportunity to get in contact with them uh, and to show a little bit of what we experience here in, in, in Geneva. But to be honest, I am not very good at uh, you know, uh, you know, using these, these platforms. Uh, I am very discreet, as you may have seen in the past. I don't publish a lot. I don't uh, tweet. I, although I have all the platforms. Uh, but let's see. Let's see if, if in the future. I, I found this, this uh, experience very interesting. I reconnect with many people. I think that uh, social platforms are a good way to, to convey messages, uh, but uh, let's see. I, and now you have, you are in a podcast, so let's see. Well, maybe you are encouraging me uh, <laughs> to, to be more active in social media, and I, I really appreciate not only the, the invitation, the opportunity, but also uh, congratulate you for the good work that, that you do and the contribution that you make to our community. Uh, I know that uh, many of us uh, listen to you, listen to your po podcast, and uh, I personally find it very, very interesting, and, and thank you again for, for the invitation. Thank you for your kind words. It has been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Marco. Thank you. This was the Rodolfo Rivas Project. I hope you loved it. Can you dig it?